I would actually argue that without that kind of pride, right, if, if we're going to say, I don't want to feel any pride at all, it's going to be really hard to be successful, right? Because pride is, in our human nature, the reason we have it is because it is what motivates us to achieve and be successful. If we didn't feel it, I'm not sure kind of what would get us to get up off the couch and, and really get anything done of, of worth and value. Every now and again, I read a book, watch a film, see or hear an interview. Maybe it's a podcast just like this one. And the content that is being shared is exactly what I need to understand either myself or my relationship to the world around me. That was definitely the case, as you're about to hear, the first time that I heard Dr. Jessica Tracy speak, and I was delighted when she accepted my invitation to come here onto Free Your Inner Guru and share her life's work with the emotion of pride with us. So sit back, listen, and I hope you get as much value out of this conversation as I did out of the first one that I listened to. Enjoy. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. Today, I'm welcoming Jessica Tracy to the podcast. Jessica is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, where she is the director of the UBC Emotion and Self Lab. The research at the lab is focused on the place that self and emotions meet, the self-conscious emotions of pride, shame, embarrassment, and guilt. I first became aware of Jessica and her work when I chanced upon a live interview she did during the hardcover launch of her groundbreaking book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. It was literally a stop the car moment as I pulled over to take notes and then turned on my phone's mic so I could capture as much as I could about what she was saying. Take Pride has just been re-released in paperback under a new title, Pride, the Secret of Success. And as far as I'm concerned, it's required reading for anyone who considers themselves a leader or anyone in a position where you are selecting a leader, whether it's in corporate, political, community, or the self-help world. Jessica, welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So Jessica, let's, um, let's dive into, just to work our way towards pride, what is a self-conscious emotion? What distinguishes it between that and other emotions? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really important question. Um, so we define self-conscious emotions as emotions that sort of require self-consciousness. And, I, and I'll break that down a bit. Um, the basic idea is that when you feel what we would call a basic emotion, a non-self-conscious emotion, like anger or fear or even happiness, you don't have to think about yourself. Often we do. Often when we experience these emotions, it's in part because we are thinking about ourselves, but it's not necessary. So I can experience fear at seeing something scary. Say I'm hiking and I see a bear. I don't have to think about what that means for who I am, for my identity, for how I feel about myself in order to experience that emotion. But to experience an emotion like pride or shame, a self-conscious emotion, I need to think about who I am and how the event that's triggering the emotion affects how I feel about myself. And, and that can still be almost anything. So you could see a bear and instead of, or in addition to feeling fear, you could start to think about, well, gosh, how am I going to respond to this bear? Am I going to show bravery? Am I going to live up to my goals for the kind of person I want to be, how I always imagined I would be in this situation? And in that case, you might very well feel pride, right? Um, but the idea is that to experience these emotions, it has to be about the self. You have to make it about the self. You have to think about who you are and, and how you feel about yourself. 
So when you take these self-conscious emotions, how would you put them on a continuum towards in between if we were to assign characteristics of either positive or negative emotions? They vary, right? So typically when we think of positive and negative emotions, we're talking about emotions that feel good and emotions that kind of feel bad in the sense of, we would say they have a negative valence or they're kind of just tough emotions to feel. They don't feel that good. And so fear is a great example of a, of a negative emotion. Shame is a self-conscious emotion, but certainly negative. There's some emotions that are kind of ambiguous. So anger is a negative emotion. It's negatively balanced. And I think typically most of us don't want to feel anger. We don't like the, the ways that it makes us act, but often there's something empowering about anger, right? And there can kind of be a self-righteous sort of anger that maybe does feel a little bit good in, in certain moments. So it's, I don't think it's that easy a distinction, even though it's one that people make all the time. Uh, in terms of self-conscious emotions, I would say, you know, shame, negative emotion, pride, positive emotion, but pride is really complicated because there are two different kinds of pride. And what I would call hubristic pride, the more arrogant pride, feels good. So it's a positive emotion in that sense, but it doesn't really lead to always good behaviors. It can be quite problematic. I recall from uh, when I read the book that in other languages, that there are actually two words to, to describe pride that yeah. are, that lead, and you've had to distinguish between these two very different types of pride. Yeah, no, exactly. That was um, kind of one of our big early findings when, when we were studying pride is that it's not just one thing, that when people think about pride and when they experience it, uh, it's not really straightforward. And I think most of us in North America, when we think of pride, the first definition that comes to mind is sort of success, achievement, accomplishment, um, confidence, right? And that kind of pride we call authentic pride. We typically see it as based in sort of an authentic sense of self. It's associated with working hard toward achieving something, accomplishment, uh, a real sense of self-confidence. And, and we found that that kind of pride is linked to all kinds of positive outcomes. People who tend to feel it uh, generally achieve a lot. They are um, nice to others. They really care about others. They have really good relationships as a result. They feel good about themselves. Um, they have this really kind of ideal personality profile where they're agreeable and extroverted and hardworking. But then there's this other kind of pride, um, and that's the pride that's more about arrogance, narcissism. We call that hubristic pride after the ancient Greek word hubris. Um, and you're right, we had to come up with these words because in English, we really do use the same word pride to refer to both, um, very much so, I think. There are languages like French and Spanish where they actually have distinguished between the words, um, and they actually have two different terms for the two different kinds of pride, which is really useful. You know, I wish we had that in English because, you know, I say authentic pride and people often don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so it would be quite helpful because these emotions really are different. Hubristic pride leads to all kinds of problematic outcomes. People tend to be antisocial. They're aggressive. They try to take advantage of others rather than help them. Uh, they have problematic relationships as a result. And they don't have this, this really nice personality profile. If anything, it's a more problematic kind of dysfunctional personality profile. Um, the first time that I heard hubris after a long time of being out of sort of a, a study of Greek mythology, I had to go and look it up. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. that's so, awesome you did. <laughs> for everyone, because um, I, you know, I consider myself fairly literate. And I remember I was like, oh, what does that word mean? So, so let's define hubris for anyone who's sure. one is hubristic comes from hubris. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, and, and, you know, to be honest, I knew of it, but when I was writing the book, I also looked it up to remind myself of kind of really where the origin is. And it's, it's this Greek term for basically people who sort of felt that they were more godlike than human. And it was considered a real problem in Greek mythology because, of course, there's this huge distinction between humans and the gods. And so for a human to see themselves as godlike 
that would be punished for sure. And, and the classic example, I think, is Icarus, who his father Daedalus made him wings, which he used to fly to the sun. But then because of his hubris, he thought, oh, with these wings, I'm kind of godlike. He flew too close to the sun and, and was killed and burned. So that's sort of the classic kind of archetypal story of how hubris leads to downfall, essentially. How would you characterize if, if somebody was wanting to consider themselves as a leader? How could we look at ourselves and say, okay, I'm what is my relationship to pride? Because clearly, although your original book title that it's the deadliest sin, there's a ton of us, myself included, that were brought up. And, you know, certainly pride was a a sin to demonstrate pride. And yet here there are these these highly desirable characteristics that come with it. Mm-hmm. So how should somebody look at pride in their relationship to it in order to be what you would consider a healthy leader? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the big contributions that I want to try to make with this research um, and with the book in particular is that there is this idea out there in a lot of popular consciousness, certainly in you know a lot of religious ideology, that pride is bad, that we should avoid pride. And, you know, I mean, even sort of contemporary sort of perspectives, Buddhist in Eastern philosophies suggest we should become selfless. Um, and I don't want to say that, you know, that's, that's wrong in any way, but I do think it kind of omits a whole perspective on pride that also is very much scientifically accurate, which is to say authentic pride is also part of this emotion. And what we found is that both kinds of pride are sort of part of human nature, right? We evolved to feel pride. It, it's actually adaptive. It helps us get social status, attain, attain rank over others, which is ultimately good for our uh, evolutionary fitness. And authentic pride is every bit as adaptive as hubristic pride. And I think actually it's far more socially adaptive than hubristic pride. It's going to help us be better people or the kind of people that we probably want to be more than hubristic pride is. Um, and so I think it's really important to say, you know what, it's okay to feel pride. It's just important to keep in mind which kind of pride you feel. Hubristic pride, arrogance, is really problematic. It does lead to bad behaviors, I think, uh, poor leadership styles in terms of dominating others and sort of invoking fear and intimidation in order to get your way, uh, basically making your subordinates feel like they have no choice but to follow you rather than choosing to follow you, versus authentic pride, which actually leads to a really different kind of leadership. And, And that's what we call prestige. So these are leaders who are respected, right? Followers choose to follow them because they actually look up to them and they want to learn something from these people. Um, Prestigious leaders in turn treat their followers with respect, right? They tend to want to help these people. They give advice to them. Um, They really see them as as worthy, worthy people to work with. And authentic pride is a big part of that. It really kind of fosters this sense of caring for others as well as wanting to work hard and achieve for oneself. And I would actually argue that without that kind of pride, right, if if we're going to say, I don't want to feel any pride at all, it's going to be really hard to be successful, right? Because pride is in our human nature. The reason we have it is because it is what motivates us to achieve and be successful. If we didn't feel it, I'm not sure kind of what would get us to get up off the couch and and really get anything done of of worth and value. In a way, if if we had that kind of relationship with pride where we saw it as fundamentally undesirable, if we felt it, then it seems to me then we would almost revert to shame or guilt over feeling that way, like yeah. guilt for feeling good or shame yeah. for feeling good. Yeah, very much. And we found that, in fact, that people who tend to feel hubristic pride actually also score high on measures of shame. They tend to have low self-esteem rather than high self-esteem, which is almost like this weird puzzle. You would never expect that. And yet that's exactly what we find. And I think it's it's for this reason that you're mentioning that there's this sense of, I shouldn't be feeling this way, right? And I also think it goes the other way that 
one way of kind of coping with shame, which is, you know, known to be the most painful emotion to experience. No one wants to experience shame. One way of coping with it is actually to kind of deny and suppress those negative feelings and then self-aggrandize, kind of inflate, make up sort of a grandiose version of yourself that you can really buy into, cling to, and make that the identity that you sort of present to the world and, and even convince yourself of. And that that's not a real kind of genuine sense of pride. That is an inauthentic hubristic pride when that happens. That makes me think of something that I often see and, and hear in the self-help world, this idea of faking it until you make it. Yeah. It, yeah. It, like the idea that um, and there, there is something to the, to setting up that idea of yourself and where you want to be, who you want to become, and then getting in line with that and, and acting that way, making decisions that way. But the idea of faking it and that it's something that's external to you mm-hmm. until, until you get there. Yeah. And I think, it, I mean, it really depends what people mean by that expression, right? Because I think if you're truly faking it, there's, there's a lot of problems with faking it, right? That is, you know, if you sort of convince yourself, okay, I'm just going to pretend I'm proud. I'm going to pretend I'm proud event. And then people, people might treat you as high status, right? And then we found that when people show expressions of pride, people who see them do in fact treat them as high in status, that we have this automatic response when we see a pride expression to assume that the person showing it deserves high status. So people will treat you that way. But if you kind of deep down feel like, you know, I don't deserve this. I've been faking it that's going to be a real problem, right? Because you're going to sort of experience yourself as inauthentic. And then that's going to put you in this position where, well, gosh, everyone sees me as so great, but I don't feel that great. I'm going to have to like really kind of buy all in into this, you know, great aggrandized sense of self. And it's sort of the perfect recipe for more hubris, essentially, right? This sort of defensiveness. I need to pretend not let anyone know that deep down, I don't feel that good about myself while at the same time portraying and projecting this really grandiose sense of self. It's almost like buying and having to buy into your own press mm-hmm. yeah. to sustain it. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, I think it's a real, it's a real issue. And I think it happens to celebrities, you know, I think it happens to politicians for sure. I think it, I think it happens to leaders. It's pretty easy to fall into that pattern, I think, because once you get in a position of power or other people looking up to you, it feels great, right? I mean, those feelings are really powerful. I think, you know, feeling good about ourselves is, is one of the, one of the most positive ways we can feel. And, and there's, there's, there's good evolutionary reason for that. It's quite adaptive to be motivated to attain those feelings. It makes us do all the things that we need to do to get others to like us and respect us. And those things are good for society and, and, um, and our longevity. But, but then once those feelings come, there's this impulse to say, okay, this feels great. I just want to keep these feelings going and sort of forget that, okay, well, the way to do that is to keep working hard, right? I'm going to, I'm going to find that next challenge and go for it. Instead, you sort of think, well, gosh, it feels really good to hear those people tell me how great I am. How can I get more people to tell me how great I am? What if I, what if I publicize my success, right? And, and I think we all fall into this trap, right? We get a big success and, and the people we tell our, you know, our loved ones and our friends, and that's great. And they're happy for us. And then we think, well, gosh, maybe I should post about this on Facebook, right? And I think, Every, you know, and there's part of us that's like, that's great. I'm sharing with, with my friends and my friends are supportive. But then there's also part of it, I think, that's like, oh, gosh, maybe that's a little bit bragging, right? Maybe that's going too far and sort of not just about sharing with my friends and feeling connected to my friends, but actually trying to get more positive feedback from others, more praise and kind of feeding off that praise. And it becomes almost addictive, I think, for some people, the sense of I need more and more praise, so it sounds to me like the, the intent, whether conscious or unconscious intent, is really important in terms of what's going on behind the scenes. 
Yeah, totally. And I think we're often not aware of it. You know, I really, you know, I think there's extreme cases of hubristically proud people who just every single opportunity they have will mention their successes, mention, you know, exaggerate their successes. Um, and, and that's one extreme. But then I think, you know, even people who are, who are generally quite humble, it's very easy to be tempted by that, by that possibility of sort of saying, well, gosh, it feels really good to have other people's praise. How can I get more of it? You know, it's, it's really tempting and it makes sense that it's tempting that that praise makes us feel so good about ourselves. And, and that's a feeling that we really, we really are driven to kind of strive for. So let's, um, let's dive into a little bit about um, this idea of pride, both types of it being cross-cultural, mm-hmm. um, that it shows up everywhere. Yeah. So we first found this in research that I did um, on the pride nonverbal expression. So we had found that uh, undergrads in California, where I was in grad school, would identify this specific nonverbal expression, which is basically uh, expanded posture, head tilt upward and smiling. Um, They'd identify that as pride. And they all agreed this is pride. And so we're pretty excited by that because prior to that point, there'd been research showing that the basic emotions were associated with distinct emotion expressions, mostly in the face, but there hadn't really been any research or very little showing that um, self-conscious emotions had these expressions and there was nothing on pride. So that was exciting, but we thought, okay, well, is this something that's really evolved that's part of human nature or is it just sort of a gesture that maybe, you know, people in California or North America know? And so we had this great opportunity where we were able to go to Burkina Faso, which is in West Africa, um, and do research among a small among you know people in this small scale traditional society there basically this this village of people um, who had never had any formal education um, so they couldn't read or write they had almost no exposure to any kind of outside culture right most of them had never left their village let alone um, you know the big cities in Burkina most of them had never visited the big cities certainly never left Burkina Faso um, and we showed them photos of people showing our pride expression. And sure enough, they identified it as pride. And so that's pretty compelling evidence that what we're talking about here is not just sort of an artifact of Western culture, but Mm -hmm. rather is universal, is something that all people know and identify as a result of our evolved human nature. Um, The other piece of evidence I think that was really sort of compelling on this point was uh, we did research with Olympic athletes uh, in the 2004 games. This was back a while ago. We had uh, judo athletes, basically. So people participating in the judo competition Um, and we had photos taken of them from the moment of match completion repeatedly for about kind of 20 seconds afterwards. So we had all these images showing exactly what behaviors they displayed. And of course this is the Olympics. So we have people from, you know, almost every country in the world. Mm. And sure enough, what we found was no matter what, no matter what country you were from, if you won a match, you showed this pride display, right? Head tilts up, uh, body expanded in various ways, chest pushed out, shoulders pulled back, arms extended out, very clear uh, depiction of pride. Um, Losers did not show it. And then it held across every culture, held across gender. But then we were able to look at this sample of athletes who were in the Paralympic judo competition, which means they were blind judo athletes. Um, And there was a very small group of them who were congenitally blind. So people who were born blind. And that's really exciting because these are people who could not have learned to show the pride expression from watching others. So we know that if they show it, it has to be, it essentially has to be because it's in our human nature to do this behavior after a success. And in fact, that's exactly what we found, that even the born blind athletes after winning a judo match responded with this overt pride display uh, behavior. So that's the evidence suggesting that this is something universal, not just specific to any particular culture. 
Now, is the pride display of authentic pride and the pride display of hubristic pride, do they display differently? Yeah, that's a great question that I get asked all the time. Um, So it's complicated. Um, If you show the pride expression that I just described to people and ask them to identify whether it's authentic or hubristic and and give them words that that convey authentic and hubristic without saying authentic and hubristic because people don't know what that means, um, people are basically at 50-50 at it. So they will just as readily identify a pride expression as authentic pride so the person looks confident, achieving, accomplished, as they will hubristic pride, saying the person looks arrogant, conceited, um, cocky. Um, So that suggests that the same expression does convey both forms of pride. That said, since the time we published that work, other people have been trying to figure out whether there might be a separate expression that kind of just conveys hubris. And there's some findings that are kind of promising. So there's some researchers, um, Jim Nelson, And uh, his colleagues have actually done some work showing that if you show people a dynamic display, so movement over time in a video, there are certain things people do over time leading up to a pride display that actually will convey hubristic pride and not authentic pride. My guess is there's something of contemptuous look in it. Um, So sort of a a sneer, for example. Um, We've also, we're also now doing work suggesting that um, the two forms of status that are linked to um, authentic and hubristic pride, so prestige being the respect-based leadership style I was talking about before, and then dominance is the form of high rank or status that's sort of more based on aggression and mm-hmm. forcing people to do what you say. Those two forms of, of status and leadership actually seem to be associated with distinct nonverbal displays. And this is very new work we haven't published yet, um, but basically it looks like prestigious leaders tend to show pride displays, um, which suggests maybe, you know, that's sort of authentic pride. Dominant leaders who we know feel more hubristic pride, so we found that in other studies, mm-hmm. they will show something a little bit different. So in both cases, they get kind of big, they expand their posture, but uh, prestigious leaders smile more, dominant leaders smile a bit less, and dominant leaders tend to tilt their heads downward rather than upward, um, but looking still looking straight at at the observer. And so it's sort of this like aggressive kind of intensive Mm. stare combined with the expansive posture. Um, So we're kind of, you know, this is all in in progress, but what it seems to be the case is that there may in fact be distinct nonverbal displays, certainly associated with the two forms of of high rank. And and that may mean also um, associated with the two forms of pride. This makes me want to go in a couple of different directions with you here. Okay, cool. The, the implication there is, because um, this is on top of what I've understood from reading your book and, and looking back at my, my own life, my own experience. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I do recall, and please correct me if my recollection is a bit off, but there was something about um, in order to be able to discern the difference between um, a leader displaying or who is comes from hubris or who comes from that authentic pride that context would be was important that's right just from having eyeballs on without knowing any context that it was extremely difficult to discern as the observer yeah no you're absolutely right and and that's great memory for detail in the book you're absolutely right um that's exactly what we found is that essentially if you just show the pride expression give people the options of authentic or hubristic pride half of them will say authentic, half of them will say hubristic. If you add some contextual information, so you say, okay, this person here, you see them showing pride. I'm also going to tell you, you know, this guy, he thinks that he's really great. You know, he, he just had a success and he thinks that his success is totally due to the fact that he's just a really smart guy. He didn't put any work in at all. 
if they hear that, they will then say, okay, that's, that's hubristic pride. Mm-hmm. If they have a different contextual information, so this person had a success they worked really hard for, you know, suggest some modesty about it, then observers will say, okay, that's authentic pride. So you're absolutely right that if we add contextual information, that will allow people to distinguish the two uh, emotions or the two kinds of pride. That's actually one of the things that I, I took away from the book in terms of my own personal experience, because I was in a situation where um, I was in an environment with a leader and felt later on that, oh, I should have been able to tell. I should have been able to you know, see that there was a potential for, um, for either hubris or not, or grandiosity mm-hmm. interfering with, with judgment that, that were made. And, and so that helped me to think in a slightly different way yeah. about what had happened, but it also sounds to me like with the research that is coming up that we may be able to learn how to become more practiced at discerning the difference when we're yeah. leaders. I completely agree. Um, I think, you know, if someone shows a pride expression, that alone does not mean that they're arrogant and that you need to watch out, right? I think the context is really relevant. I think we kind of know the situations in which it's appropriate and which it's not. And so, you know, if someone is being successful, demonstrating leadership and shows a pride expression, I wouldn't say that's inappropriate. I would say, okay, they're, they're showing their power. They're being a good leader. That's a good thing. We want our leaders to do that, right? Um, I think if, you know, if it comes too often, if it's in situations where it's not appropriate, where, where maybe we'd expect a bit of humility. Um, and if it's coming alongside statements suggesting grandiosity, right? Verbal statements of, you know, bragging, that kind of thing, that might convey something different. And then, yeah, you're right. I think this new research that, you know, we're, we're in the middle of working on right now, I think it actually might suggest that there are these different kind of reliable, observable displays that we might look for and, and use them in, in this way. Looking at pride and its expression and leadership in the world today, it seems like we'd be missing an opportunity to get into the the book deeper without explaining that within the book yourself, which you worked on, as you said, before we got on here for years, the examples that you use of hubristic pride versus authentic pride um, is actually Donald Trump. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny, I've been working on pride since I was in grad school in in the early 2000s. And I've always used Trump as an example of hubristic pride. I mean, at the time, he was just, you know, he was a business guy who had a TV show that was really successful. But he was a fantastic example of hubristic pride because or of someone who conveys hubristic pride and and clearly feels it. Um, I think most people sort of are aware of social norms that that require us not to brag ostentatiously, that requires to show some humility. So it's easy to find examples if you kind of pay enough attention of people demonstrating hubris. And, and I've got kind of like, you know, a computer file folder full of them. But Donald Trump is just, you know, he's one of the best in terms of repeatedly, regularly, every time he speaks, um, you know, saying something that just is such a classic example of, of grandiosity. Um, so he's always been kind of a, a fun example for that. When I was writing the book, he was in the process of running for president. And as, you know, most people thought at the time, he wasn't expected to win. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was really interesting writing the book. I didn't write it at all to be about the president. That was mm-hmm. never any intention of mine. Um, and I didn't expect that he would be the president. And, and the book was published in September of 2016, right before he was elected. So even when the book came out, you know, I still thought, well, we're about to see this man who 
is kind of a, you know, I wouldn't say a character in the book, but is an example used in the book, um, we're about to see him defeated. Um, and so, you know, I thought it was sort of interesting to kind of say, well, maybe, maybe his hubristic pride, maybe that is part of what's going on, why people don't like him or why the people who I should say now, the people who don't like him, don't like him, um, that he is too grandiose, that he, um, is extremely aggressive and domineering in the way that he wields power. Um, and yet the fact that he won, I think, it's sort of, it's, it's really been quite informative in terms of how hubristic pride can be an effective tool for getting power. Um, so, so he uses a strategy of dominance, which we've talked about. That's this, you know, kind of invoking fear in others in order to get power. People don't like dominant leaders, but they give them power nonetheless. And we've actually found in lab studies that, um, we have groups of people interacting and we have everyone rate everyone else on dominance and prestige and then do a bunch of tasks. And it's, it's really fascinating even these are, these are undergraduates, right? College students, it's a domain where you would think, okay, dominance is not going to get you anywhere, right? We want prestigious leaders in in a college setting. We don't want someone coming in and being a bully or making fun of other people to get power. And yet the dominant people, they're just as good at getting power in these groups as are the prestigious. So people who their peers say, I found him scary, right? He took control. I didn't like him. Those people, their peers will also say he was influential. He had power over others. And we find the same thing on behavioral measures. Those people actually have more control over the group decisions. They, they end up swaying them more. And outside observers who watch them interact say, yeah, that guy was one of the leaders. Um, now, this is the same for prestige. Prestige works also. That was just was less surprising. What's really surprising is that dominance is actually an effective tactic. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of theories about why Trump won. And, and I don't want to, you know, get too involved in that. But I do think that there's a paper that came out suggesting that people will go for dominant leaders in situations of uncertainty. So Mm. when we're nervous, when we're scared, someone who comes in and kind of expresses um, a strong sense of this is how things should be. I think that's part of it. I also think a dominant leader seems really tough. And if you are in a situation where you feel like my group needs a representative to be tough against some other group, we're going to have to do battle against some other group, for example, that's a situation where people will choose a dominant leader. And so I think, it's possible that a lot of people who voted for Trump might have felt like, you know what, he's representing the little guy, right? The, the sort of um, lower socioeconomic status people, right? Lower class individuals. He's representing us. We haven't had a representative for a really long time. He's going to kind of show the country what we want, what we deserve, um, you know, fight back against immigrants, that kind of thing. And I, and I think that's probably, you know, that is a situation where maybe a dominant leader might be compelling. And it's, it's like there's this inherent certainty that is attractive. Yeah. Or yeah. projects very well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and dominant leaders do project a greater certainty, I think. I think prestigious leaders tend to be more open to ambiguity. Um, they're more interested in seeking consensus from the group. They want to hear what their followers have to say. Um, and, and that's a really compelling leadership style in terms of people enjoying themselves. So we've done tasks where people have been uh, working in a group where you're assigned one leader and the leader is either dominant or prestigious. And people who work with a prestigious leader, they have a great time, right? They really feel like they get a lot out of it. Uh, they feel good about themselves. They report high levels of authentic pride at the end of the task. Um, they enjoy it. They like their leader a lot. People who work with a dominant leader don't have any of that. They don't really like it. They don't particularly say that they have a good time. They don't come out feeling good about themselves, but they actually get a lot done, right? That dominant leader, I know it's, it's, it's not what we would hope. (laughs) So everybody knows. I know, right? (laughs) It's not what we would hope, right? I I wanted to see the results that, okay, the groups led by a prestigious leader, they did better on every task. And they did better on some tasks, tasks that required creativity, thinking Mm -hmm. outside the box, 
prestigious leaders were far better at guiding groups toward that kind of thing. And I think that's because prestigious leaders kind of foster an environment where people feel comfortable, you know, offering random opinions, thinking outside the box, right? Being creative. But for tasks that require analytic skills, coming to kind of one clear decision, one clear answer, dominant leaders ended up getting their group more close to the correct answer in those situations, um, probably because they're, they're certain, they're authoritative, they're not going to wait for consensus, they're just going to say, okay, this is it, let's move on. And there are situations apparently where, where you know, that might pay off. You can see that there are, there are times where getting to that clarity faster could be more expedient, more efficient. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like at what cost in terms of the cost sounds like people. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. The people absolutely do better, feel better as, as humans, you know, feel better about themselves with a prestigious leader. The other thing I want to say about that study, which I think is a, is a big limitation to keep in mind about it, is that um, it's very different in the situation we created. We're in the lab. We bring people in and we say, okay, you're the leader, Right. And that's a weird situation to be in because in the real world, prestigious leaders have earned their leadership. They've worked really hard to accomplish something and they've been promoted to a leadership position as a result of that. And my guess is that in that situation, prestigious leaders are going to feel much more confident about making firm conclusions, right? Not always waiting for consensus, kind of requiring the group to kind of pull together. In our lab task, these prestigious leaders might have felt like, well, who am I to tell him what to do? Right. I just, they just randomly told me I'm the leader here. Mm. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to push these people into reaching a decision they don't believe in. And that could have hurt their performance in the task. So I think it's really important to kind of, you know, hold judgment on, on what we want in the real world until these studies have been replicated in more real world situations. Yeah, that's, that, um, that definitely, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, let's talk about pride and narcissistic behavior. Okay. How do, how do narcissists tend to relate to pride? So narcissists do feel pride. It's kind of a key emotion of narcissists. Um, we have found that narcissists tend to feel both authentic and hubristic pride, but there's different kinds of narcissism. And so the narcissism literature in uh, social personality psychology, which is my field, it's a huge literature. And there's a lot of different opinions and, and sort of controversies about what narcissism is. But most researchers buy the idea that there's what we would call grandiose narcissism and then more vulnerable narcissism. And the idea here is that grandiose narcissists are people who they come into the room, they're loud, you know, they, they're socially attractive, they make a big impression, they kind of take over. People like them, right? They're often charming. Um, and, you know, my, my, my classic grandiose narcissist example is sort of a Bill Clinton, right? This is someone who clearly he thinks that he's the smartest person in the room, but he also cares what other people think of him. He wants people to like him. He's going to make a good impression. Um, That's sort of the grandiose narcissist. Then there's more what we call vulnerable. Some people say malignant narcissists. There's different terms used. These are people who um, the key factor is more about entitlement. So they are grandiose. They do think they're great. But what's most important is they think they deserve more than they're getting. And there's sort of this sense of embitterment, um, aggression toward others, hostility, um, and, and, and real sense that sort of why, why don't people think I'm as great as I know I am? Why am I not getting what I deserve? And, um, and studies suggest that basically the vulnerable narcissists tend to be more kind of, uh, the shame that underlies, I think all forms of narcissism. So I think all narcissists tend to be kind of defending against implicit feelings of insecurity, but the grandiose narcissists, 
they've kind of got it under control, right? Every now and then they might have a bout of insecurity or doubts, but for the most part, they're regulating, they're, they're expressing just the, you know, this grandiosity and feeling good about it. And they kind of get by that way. Vulnerable narcissists aren't able to do that so much. And I think they experience the shame much closer to the surface. Um, that insecurity kind of, you know, rears its head pretty often. They can experience depression as a result from time to time, um, mood swings, and hubristic pride seems to be really particularly strongly related to this vulnerable kind of narcissism. It's also related to grandiose narcissism, but it is very much kind of a, a key indicator of the of the vulnerable um, narcissism. Wow. And and is that when we're talking about narcissism in this context, because I think the word gets thrown around a lot mm-hmm. uh, because it's a diagnosis. Yeah. That, you know, like there is a, a narcissistic personality disorder. Yes. Yeah. And um, and. And then there is the idea that somebody, oh, is narcissistic Mm -hmm. or that people are becoming narcissistic in this age of social media. So, you know, so it's both an adjective and a diagnosis. Yeah. So where, where, where do you see this, the looking at pride informing that conversation about what it is and how it has (laughs) an impact in society? Yeah. So I think that's an important point to make. Um, narcissism is a clinical disorder, a personality disorder, but it's, you know, an official diagnosis. Um, typically if you have the diagnosis, the clinical diagnosis of narcissism, that means that your narcissistic, narcissistic personality is actually getting in the way of you being able to successfully kind of live your life. Right. So Mm -hmm. you might have to miss work. You can't have successful relationships. You can't hold down a job that kind of major life consequences is typically the level at which I think people will say, okay, that's, this is a real personality disorder as opposed to a character trait. Right. And, and that's kind of the way that we typically study it in, in the field that I work in, which is sort of people vary in how narcissistic they are as a, as a character trait. And mm-hmm. if you're quite high in it, you could well reach the level of having it be a disorder. Um, mm-hmm. it, it could, you know, it could get to that level, um, but it doesn't have to. And you know, my guess is that people who have um, the disorder, right, who are actually sort of clinically diagnosed with nar- narcissistic personality disorder, those people are going to experience quite a, quite a large amount of hubristic pride, I would think. So this leads me to the idea that we don't have to be a diagnosable narcissist mm-hmm. to experience hubristic pride or be vulnerable to it. And in the book, I believe you described that as um, the hubris trap. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, Narcissism itself is a continuum. So everyone varies to some extent along it. Um, And and even people who are quite low in it, right, who who tend to be generally humble, I think even people like that can be susceptible to hubristic pride. And, And I think the reason for it is kind of what I was saying before, that essentially feeling good about ourselves is incredibly compelling. Right. Getting praise from others, getting others approval. It's just one of the most compelling experiences we can have. Uh, authentic pride is actually um, the, the emotion. I think of all the emotions, it's highest in what we would call positive valence, positivity, pleasantness. Right. It just feels really good. And so if we're praised by others, we start to feel this authentic pride. Right. And that, that's great. That feels really good. But then if instead of kind of thinking, okay, well, I want to get more of these pride experiences, I'm going to keep working hard so I can achieve more, we start to think, okay. I want that praise. I'm going to do what I can to get more approval and praise from others. That's the trap, right? That's where it's possible to sort of switch over and think, gosh, I could keep working hard or there's this easier route that I could take to try to get that praise. 
right? And I think one of the examples I give in the book of this is Lance Armstrong, who, mm. you know, worked his butt off for years and years to become the fastest cyclist in the world. I mean, just a phenomenal athlete who did so much. And then somewhere along the line, something happened, something shifted, I think, where suddenly, you know, it, it stopped being the most important thing to him to be the best cyclist in the world. And, and what became important was just to win races, regardless of whether he was the best, right? Because if you're winning by doping, by cheating, you're not winning actually is sort of meaningless. You're not, you're not, you're no longer winning, you know, by winning, showing, showing the world that you're the best, or at least showing yourself that you're the best. You're just getting that praise from others. That's really all it's about is the, is the social acclaim and social approval. And so at some point, I think he switched from wanting to actually feel good about himself as the best cyclist in the world to just wanting that praise. And so he actually did something that literally made it impossible for him to know that he was the best cyclist in the world, right? I mean, he might've told himself he was, he might've convinced himself he was, but in a genuine way, there's no way that he could actually think that he was the best cyclist in the world when his performance was based on this artificial cheating. Um, and so that's kind of a classic example, I think, of how this switch can happen, even to people who start out with, I think, probably really good intentions. And I think that leads to what you are saying, um, refers back to what you're saying about entitlement to some mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. to sustain it now you know and and stay at that level there there seems to me to be uh this feeling of i deserve it now because it's me yeah no i think you're right i think people get really attached to the the praise they get from others and mm-hmm. to the point where they sort of think yeah this is who i am i am this person that others think is fantastic and and i deserve their praise and well gosh if if you know why should i have to work hard for it right i deserve it i've already shown how great i am you know, if, if I need to cheat to keep getting it, then that's what I'll do because it is what I deserve. You know, I think that's probably part of what happens. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the sort of world beyond elite athleticism, mm-hmm. cheating and cutting corners, let's say, would mm-hmm. be comparable. Absolutely. Make it universal to, because everyone yeah. has the opportunity to cut corners. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, this is something we're doing work on in my lab right now. So it's very, very new research. We haven't even written up or anything yet, but this is exactly what we're finding is that people who are prone to hubristic pride, when we give them the opportunity to cheat on a task, merely for the sake of kind of looking good to someone else, they will do it. And and they won't do it if, if they tend to feel authentic pride. Authentic pride does not seem to foster cheating, but the people who report high levels of hubristic pride, they're the ones who will say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I will cheat. It's not just that they say it, they actually do it. When, when we give them the opportunity, they actually will say, you know, will choose to look at the answer in, other, in, or, in, in order to do better um, for a peer. So in a way, success at all costs. Yeah, absolutely. Success at all costs. Yeah. So um, the new title of the book, Pride, The Secret of Success. Mm-hmm. What... How do you see pride as being that, not the secret, but essential to success? Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, you know, and, and I think the new title is nice for kind of getting that point, which is I think a key point in the book, which is that um, this idea that essentially this is why we evolved to feel pride, right? This is sort of the science behind it is human, human nature includes this emotion that essentially makes us feel good about our identity, right? Our, our complex sense of self, how we see ourselves. And that is critical because feel, wanting to feel good about ourselves, wanting to feel pride, that is what motivates all kinds of achievement. And, you know, we see it in all kinds of ways. So, you know, people who work hard on an exam, if they're a student, people who, you know, work hard at their job, the reason they're doing that is so that they can feel pride in themselves. And, I've given a lot of examples in the book also of cases where 
pride or the desire to feel pride actually motivates a major life change that allows for success. Um, so I talk in the book, for example, about Dean Karnazes, who is known as the ultra marathon man. He's a great, um, he's told, he's written great books about his experience that I highly recommend. Um, but he tells this great story about how he got into running. So he runs ultra marathons, which is essentially races that are longer than the marathons, 26 miles. So he's run hundred mile races, even longer. Um, and the way that he got into it was he was, you know, he was a runner in high school, um, on the track team. And then he, then he gave up. He sort of quit running when he grew up and kind of became an adult and got a job and went to business school and all that sort of thing. And on his 30th birthday, he had kind of a little early, I would say midlife crisis where he sort of realized that his life was not where he wanted to be, you know, for various reasons, his job was boring him, you know, getting one promotion after another, one deal after another, wasn't particularly exciting. Um, his, his marriage might have been in trouble. And he had this kind of just moment, this epiphany on turning 30 and just, for whatever reason, ended up putting on running shoes and running all night long. And he ended up running 30 miles down the coast that night. He lived in San Francisco and he ran down to Half Moon Bay, which is I think about 30 miles away. Um, he hadn't run in I think 12 years. So after that night, he couldn't walk for days. Um, so you can imagine. But, but that moment changed his life because while, while running, while doing this, he felt this sense of being alive. And I would say this sense of pride that he hadn't felt in years. And that kind of made him realize, oh gosh, this is what I've been missing this is what I need to do. And so he changed his life around as a result of that. He became this, you know, endurance runner. He quit his job. He's now a promotional kind of um, inspirational speaker and writer and um, does all kinds of cool things. And, and I think there are many people who kind of figured out what they needed to do with their life from a similar recognition that wasn't about feeling pride, but actually about noticing a lack of pride, right? That, that sometimes mm -hmm. we're just going along with, with our daily lives, doing our thing. And, and something will happen to make us realize you know, I don't have the opportunity in my life to feel good about myself, to feel proud of who I am. And for some people, it might lead to a career change. For other people, it might be like, oh, you know what? I used to play the guitar. What if I pick that up again? What if that's something that can make me feel proud of myself? Or what if I start coaching my kids' soccer team, right? Maybe that's a way that I can start feeling a sense of pride. And I think these changes are critical because by engaging in these change behaviors, we then allow ourselves the opportunity to experience pride, which really just means the opportunity to work hard at something that we value, that we identify with, and that there's sort of challenge and also the opportunity for growth and success. And when we do that and then start experiencing pride, that really changes everything. I think it just gives life, it gives us a sense of fulfillment and meaning that, that we all need as humans. I can relate to that. And that informs a lot of, a lot of what I do as a coach, but also as a human being. Yeah, that's awesome. Where it's it's this process of um, finding things that you are good at, that you enjoy, that may be for yourself or may make some kind of a contribution. Sure. You yeah. know, or or both. You know, yeah. ideally in some in you know, ideally both. Sure. Yeah. Um, and how can we relate this to someone who's listening, who sees themselves as a leader or wanting to become a better leader, having an impact? What would you recommend or, or how would you counsel somebody who is new in leadership on and how to use this awareness of what pride is and how important it is? And then that and then the continuum of where it can end up. Yeah, I would say, you know, number one, I think this idea that we should avoid pride, that's not right, right? That, that actually it's okay to say that I am motivated by pride or the desire to feel pride. I think that's not something people should be afraid to say. Um, and I think there is some stigma attached to that in certain circles that I would like to kind of get rid of. Um, that, you know, 
as much as, you know, we might try to avoid being motivated by pride, it is our nature to do so. And, and I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Although as we've discussed it, it can become a bad thing. Um, you know, that's number one. And then number two, I think is to think about and understand the difference between authentic and hubristic pride and understand that authentic pride, the good kind of pride, um, is all about finding something that is meaningful to you and then working hard to attain that thing. And then keep on working hard, keep, keep doing that thing to basically keep getting that pride. That's, that's really kind of the key in its simplest form, I would say. So it, it's not about suddenly arriving and then you're all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's sort of the problem, right? Is that we want to feel like, Oh, if I just work, you know, if I get this one last promotion, then I'll have everything I want. I'll be the best. I'll be, you know, that's great. Get the promotion, but the struggle is not going to stop. You know I mean? I think <laughs> if you want to continue feeling pride, which I think most of us do need and, and not always, I think, you know, we can ebbs and flows. You can have moments in your life where you're really ambitious and striving for accomplishments. Other moments where you're just relaxing and kind of maybe more focused on other people or other parts of your life. That's great too, I think. But I think if, if you want to kind of fill that hole that I think many people experience when they don't have opportunities for pride, then, then what you have to do is not just say, okay, I'm there, I'm done, but actually find that next thing that you want to tackle. And, and I think your point that, you know, it doesn't have to be a work success, right? It could be, you know, there's someone out there, a person I really want to help. I'm going to spend more time helping my parents with something or my grandparents or my kids, um, or I'm going to, you know, work for the community at large. I'm going to go work in a soup kitchen and help the homeless or um, donate my time to some other organization that I feel really strongly about. I think pride can come from, from all those kinds of efforts. And you're right that, you know, ultimately if we're doing something that makes us feel good about ourselves, chances are it's also something that's going to be good for society. And that's because, you know, the things that, make us feel good about ourselves are for the most part things that our society has told us should make us feel good about ourselves. We sort of learn those messages through socialization. So even if it's just an independent, I'm going to work really hard so I can, you know, do really well at my job. Well, chances are your job is also something benefiting society in some way. So mm -hmm. I think there are these downstream consequences as well. Well, Jessica, I want to thank you very much for your time and for coming on here to have this conversation. Oh, you're um, welcome. Thanks so much. Yeah. I, I, driving that day between Toronto and Ottawa and hearing that interview and having you here now to follow up on a lot of these things all this time later has been a very special opportunity. Oh, cool. That's so nice of you to say. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Free Your Inner Guru. I know you've got a lot of choice where you receive your inspiration and information. I hope that you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Jessica Tracy as much as I did. In the show notes, you will find two links that go back to Dr. Tracy. The first link is to her book, Pride, The Secret of Success, where you can get your copy and read more on what she has to say. As well, there's a link to her Twitter account. So make sure that you follow her on Twitter where she posts on issues related to her work. And uh, it will be a lot of fun watching her journey as her influence as a leader continues to evolve. If you feel like I do that this is a conversation that more people would benefit from hearing, follow the links back to our website where you'll find all the social sharing and email sharing links possible. Thanks again for listening. I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru. <laughs>